Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Good evening again. Um, if we haven't met, my name is Taylor Leachman. I'm the pastor here at Advent. It's good to uh, be with you all as we start this new sermon series um, on, uh, actually, it's you know called Awaken Houston, uh, along with the rest of the Houston Church Planting Network. And before we really begin, I kind of want to do um, a, a, a small mini lecture. Um, because I want to talk a little bit about what uh, what it is that we're actually participating in and what is it that we're actually praying for as we pray alongside of the rest of the Houston Church Planning Network as we pray for revival. Um, because revival within you know the church context is pretty loaded. Uh, and, and so um, I want to first talk about this distinction between what we're calling revival and revivalism. Um, there's actually a great book uh, by that very title called Revival and Revivalism, and a lot of these thoughts are taken from that very book. Um, revivalism was well, kind of came out of the Second Great Awakening. For those of you all who remember your U.S. history uh, classes, um, we had the First Great Awakening in the 17th or in 18th century, um, and then in the 19th century there was this desire to recreate the Spirit's work within the country. And so revivalism was born. Now, what is revivalism? Revivalism is just that. It is reverse engineering. Uh, and it's this attempt to recreate this, uh, this religious fervor within a community. Revival, therefore, becomes man's responsibility. We're going to try and recreate this revival. What were all of the key ingredients that existed before that work now? Well, one of them also is a cultish celebrity, uh, kind of a cult of personality, right, uh, um, behind a particular pastor. That it's actually the pastor's gifts uh, that bring about revival, um, and so it's not about the truth that's being preached. It's about how charismatic and how gifted the particular pastor is. Number three, it's reliance upon high production quality, right? Just like all of the new sound equipment we just got in here, like right? super high quality. And so that's why revival is actually happening. No, the, the point was this, is that if the higher the quality of production uh, the less there's any potential issues and the more that you can ultimately recreate a mountaintop experience for somebody where they might encounter uh, the good news. Number four, emotional manipulation. Um, and, and so one of the chief examples of this was in the great uh, you know, kind of tent revival meetings, there was a, a, a seated area right at the very front would have been in front of, of, uh, of the altar or in front of the pulpit called the anxious bench. And the anxious bench was visible to everyone within the community. And it was where you had to go and sit in order to then have somebody help you lead, help lead you to Jesus. Um, and so it was all about making it visual, uh, all about recreating a particular emotional experience that would lead you to conversion. Number five. 
I don't think I told you how many there are. I'm gonna, there's six, uh, so don't worry, I'm not going too, too far. Um, number six, there's a reductionistic view of conversion in this world. All I have to do is get someone to make a single decision or pray a particular prayer, and they're converted. Doesn't matter anything that happens beyond that. We did it. They're converted, and that's all that matters. And so ultimately, within that particular view, there is a a, a denigration of the local church. And to be fair to our 19th century brothers, the church, the local church at that particular point in time, didn't really care about preaching the good news in that particular way. So they were trying to to fill a need that hadn't been met. But... There was no sense that the local church actually was important for someone's spiritual growth, spiritual edification, uh, and growth in Jesus Christ. So that's revivalism, and that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is revival, which is merely this, the work of the Holy Spirit that brings personal and corporate renewal. It causes individuals and it causes people groups to desire to submit their lives to the reign of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. True revival is not man-led. It's not manipulated or it cannot be uh, kind of scheduled. It is led by the Holy Spirit. It's Holy Spirit orchestrated. So it isn't scheduled. It's not like revival this night, you know, come Sunday evening, 10 p.m., we're having a revival, and it's going to happen. That's not what we're talking about. It isn't orchestrated with the right music or preaching or even the right location. It's spirit-led, and it often happens through scriptural preaching, but it can happen at any time, right? Not, not at a time that we schedule um, because the spirit is the one at work, and the spirit is the one working through, but it often begins with renewal amongst God's community first, right? Um, True revival begins with God's people. It begins with Christians. It begins with revival of the church. So as we read uh, our passage this evening, which comes from Jonah chapter 3, we see the repentance of the Ninevites, right? The Ninevites are essentially, they are Assyrian people. These are the people who conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, Um, and so you can obviously see this setup in, in Jonah's story of, of the Israelite and, uh, and the Assyrians who are natural enemies of one another, and yet one is being called to go and preach the good news to them. And so, but it can be tempting to look at the story and say, well, okay, I get it. I get what's happening here in this revival passage. We're supposed to be like Jonah, going to the evil, terrible people out there. Uh, those people are the ones who need the repentance. They're the ones who need the revival. Um, but as we talk about it these upcoming weeks, I pray that God would move in our hearts first, that we would see far more in common with the Ninevites. Uh, and, and actually, in, um, in six weeks, we're actually going to do Jonah. We're going to go through the whole book of Jonah. And spoiler alert, we have a lot in common with Jonah as well. He's not really a hero for a lot of a lot of the book. Um, but my prayer for us is this, that God would renew uh, and be at work in us, and God would be at work in his church here in Houston. So with that said, um, let me read for us Jonah chapter 3, um, if you all can follow along with me in your bulletins. 
Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth, sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Would y'all pray with me? Um, Father, I pray as we consider this this passage, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Um, when I, uh, I used to work with RUF, it stands for Reform University Fellowship. I was an intern with them right when I graduated college. And uh, I was placed at Davidson College in, in Davidson, North Carolina. And while I was an intern, there was a very famous story that was being told about a campus minister at the time, a very charismatic campus minister who happened to be kind of in the North Carolina, uh, Georgia, Tennessee area. Um, and this man was, was regularly asked, as many RUF campus ministers are, regularly asked to preach at the local churches in his area. Um, and... Oftentimes, uh, there were, you know, different campus ministers feel good about a few of their sermons for a local church context. And so this campus minister decided he felt really good about four of them, and he he kept those in his car wherever he would travel. That way, in case, you know, he had to travel far from, from Tennessee and go preach in South Carolina, he would do that, and he had a sermon ready to go. Um, and so uh, he happened to be needing to travel pretty far to go preach at this location, um, and he, he was late. Um, he was late to get there. He barely got there right before the worship service uh, started, and he, he just grabbed one of his sermons, and he ran inside. And uh, as, he was rate, as he was late, uh, he, you know, he happened to just get up there and preach it, and he thought everything was going really good. Um, well, this was a Southern church and, and Southern uh, hospitality. And after Southern church usually lets out, you, you go to the to the exit and you say thank you to, for, for coming to, to the service. And he did that. He went to stand out and greeted or said goodbye to everyone at the door. And this old sweet lady within the church uh, came up and thanked him for his sermon and said, you know, pastor, it was a really good sermon. 
Then she continued, but you preached it the last time you were here uh, as well. And he's like, he's wrecked inside and he tries to recover as quickly as he possibly can and come up with something witty. And that's when he says, well, y'all needed to hear it again. Um, And my point of bringing up this story is this. That we just preached on repentance last week, right? Uh, We just preached on putting off Jesus Christ and putting him on. And so in some ways, I'm kind of tempted to jokingly say, uh, you know, y'all need to hear it again, or I need to hear it again. And and absolutely, we always do need to hear uh, the need to repent, but also uh, the good news that comes with that repentance. But the real reason that we begin... Um, this season of prayer, this 30-day period where we are going to try and fast and pray alongside of the rest of the Houston Church Planning Network is this, that we want to begin um, with praying for our own repentance. Right? Not We don't want to begin by looking at somebody else and saying, God, be at work in them. Right? Just like the New Testament reading that Owen read for us earlier, that is a negative example for us. We are not to be like the Pharisee looking at the tax collector saying, God, thank you that I am not like him. I pray that you would give him repentance, that you would give him revival. But that's what we're tempted to do. The first thing that we should do as we pray for the Holy Spirit to be at work in our city is for him to be at work within us. And that begins with our own repentance. And so this evening, I want to look at this passage with, with two um, alliterative uh, adjectives. Uh, or, and that is, um, I want to look at honest repentance, and I want to look at hungry repentance. Um, so first, let's look at the honest repentance that's here. Well, as I mentioned, Jonah is a prophet um, who has been told by God to go to Nineveh. And to preach the message that God has told him. Um, and you know, by beginning in chapter 3, like we're doing uh, in this sermon series, we've missed a lot of the book of Jonah. Um, but as I said, we'll actually be going through it in about a month or so. But he preaches and says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And presumably, that's not the entirety of the message that he is preaching. Right, because the people of Nineveh here seem to recognize that they have an opportunity to do something in order to change that outcome. Um, they believe that God, the God of the Jewish people, is a God who can be merciful. And they believe the truth that they need to change their evil ways. Right? Because it is their evil ways that has brought about this type of divine judgment. But proper judgment or holy judgment. Right, as God is the is the judge, it always implies grace. Right? Um, that the actions of those under judgment deserve to be punished is an aspect of that, yes. But perhaps there is still the possible possibility of avoiding that judgment or avoiding that punishment. And the Ninevites believe this truth in its entirety, right? Not just the second half. Um, about about like what can I do to avoid the punishment? They also believe the first aspect of it. They believe that they have done wrong. They immediately move into a posture of repentance. Verse eight tells us that their repentance was truly honest. 
Right? It was an honest assessment of their sin. The king said, let everyone turn away from their evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Right? They aren't saying, you know, we've definitely done some wrong stuff. And in fact, even the way that we conquered uh, the Israelite people wasn't so good when we like filleted them out and did awful things to their people. Um, but you know what? That's just like warfare. It, it, the things happen. That's not what is happening here. They're owning their sin and being honest about it. In the passage we read earlier, uh, that we read earlier in Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable that juxtaposes the Pharisee with the tax collector. Luke introduces this parable by saying, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, which is just another way of saying they were self-righteous. Right? We are often tempted to cast the Pharisees as these like evildoers um, or these wicked human beings, but their sin is made, that is made apparent in Jesus's ministry is not apparent to us if we had been there, right? Because it is self-righteous sin. That is their main sin. The Pharisees had reason to think that they were good. Imagine the very best person that you know, right? They're probably disciplined. They're smart. Everybody likes them. Your parents like them probably more than you, right? Those are, that's what, at least what it begins to feel like, right? The, maybe your parents never came out and said it to you, but if they had, it would have gone something like this. Why can't you be more like Tom, right? Or why are you dating Tim when Tom is right there, right? Whatever it might be. Those people, that whoever you're thinking of, that is highly respected, right? They're polite. They follow all the rules. That is what the Pharisees were. They were highly, highly respected in their day and age because their lives were good in every way that we typically measure good. But Jesus' point is that all of the good that we do, all of the good that we think about ourselves is nothing. Because oftentimes all that we're doing uh, is living dishonestly. We're using that good to cover up the corruption that is going on within us, within our very heart. It can allow for us to hide. It can allow for us to, to hide underneath that costume of goodness. And ultimately, we can even begin to hide from our very selves where we don't even know that we're doing it. We look just like the Pharisees in the parable. We say, you know, I'm not like so-and-so. I'm not like Tim, right? Thus the self-righteous, the ones who've been doing good are the ones who often are the least honest in their repentance because they're the least honest about what's actually happening on the inside. We're focused more on the outside in those circumstances. But despite all the good they do, despite all the good that we do, we struggle to ask the heart-piercing questions Do we actually love the Lord, our God, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? And do we actually love our neighbor as ourself? The tax collector's life is openly screwed up. He can't hide behind respectability. He sees his sin in his heart and the sin on the outside as he has cheated others and as he's pursued greed. He doesn't hide behind any of the good he's done because what is there to hide behind? He says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
He's being open and honest about who he is. That's what it means for us to honestly repent. To come before the Lord with our hearts and our actions just laid bare. To refrain from pious attitudes, but to admit where our heart has been prideful, greedy, covetous, whatever it might be. And for us in the American church, I think that the place where we most need to actually begin honest repentance is is with our sins of omission, which is a fancy way of saying the things that we have failed to do, the positive commands that God gave us to do that we have not done. Where we failed to love our God, we failed to love our enemies, as Christ has called us to do. We failed to love our our true next-door neighbors. Many of us don't even know our neighbors. Right? Well, we failed to promote the truth, especially in this age of disinformation. We're a little bit afraid to get in, involved and to actually speak up for someone else that is being taken to task improperly or inappropriately. Well, we failed to promote true justice or true goodness. May we be honest about the many ways that we have failed and may we confess it to God. So that leads us to our second point, which is hungry repentance. Um, when we talk about spending a, a season in fasting and, and prayer, we're usually pretty good at the idea of, of committing to prayer, but fasting seems incredibly strange, right? Um, right? In fact, probably the only fasting that many of us have done is like fasting for our health, so intermittent fasting or, uh, or fasting from sugar uh, during certain seasons. Um, maybe many of y'all have talked to me and my wife recently. We are on day uh, 20 something, I don't know, 23, 24, um, of whole 30, right? And, uh, and that feels like a massive fast right now. Um, my point of bringing any of that up is oftentimes when we think about fasting, we think purely maybe for cosmetic purposes, we think about it as a discipline Um, And we don't really recognize or allow for fasting to do what it's intended to do, which is to do a spiritual good within us. Because the type of fasting that my wife and I are doing is making us hangry, Uh, right? Um, And that's kind of all the spiritual work it's doing within us right now. Um, But my point is this. Um, A diet has nothing to do with repentance, it isn't a sin to eat uh, sugar or to eat legumes or, uh, or anything along those lines. So refraining from them doesn't bring a spiritual benefit um, that we see here in, to the Ninevites. You see, fasting that is in view here in Jonah 3 and the fasting into which I'm inviting us to participate is much more about the disposition of our heart um, than it is about the action itself. In Scripture, fasting is regularly a part of life. It's not just an Old Testament aspect of life. It's a command for God's people in the New Testament as well. Um, And it fuels repentance. The Ninevites, upon hearing the truth that God was going to overthrow Nineveh, what did they do? They put on sackcloth. The king sat in ashes, another physical reminder of it. And they didn't eat or drink. And not only that, they asked their animals to stop eating or drinking so that they would then also join in the community of just loud moaning and sadness, which is what would have happened. All of these people were joining in the fast together. In fact, 
It was a fast on behalf of the whole nation, right? It was a, a, a whole people fast. Um, was the fast some sort of arm twisting on their behalf, right? Where they're like, hey, God, look at what I'm doing. Look at what I'm doing, and maybe you'll relent. Right? I'll give this up. Now you give up harming me. Right? We'll make that a tit-for-tat type of situation. Um, we often have that type of, of uh, understanding of what it means to fast and pray. God, I'm going to do this, and this is the magic elixir that I need in order to fix my life or in order for somebody I know and love to come to Jesus Christ. Now, what is it that's actually happening here? This is a fasting that fuels their repentance. Their hunger fuels their repentance for God. Their physical hunger hunger demonstrates their spiritual hunger. They're embodying the totality of their repentance. They're allowing for all aspects of their hunger to remind them of the biggest hunger that they have, the need for forgiveness from God. They're admitting their inability to take care of themselves or to save themselves. And that's true for us as well. We have this misconception that fasting was something that was only supposed to maybe happen in these types of dire, dire circumstances where we have to put on sackcloth and maybe we put out the fire and grab the ashes and go, uh, go, go stand in it. No, that's, that's not what we're doing. Um, and we're not trying to twist God, God's arm either. Um, but we are going to participate in a season. I want to invite us to participate in a season of fasting and prayer. Um, a regular rhythm of fasting and prayer for our own spiritual benefit. And I want for us to, to pick something. I don't know what it might be. It might be sugar for some of us. It might be, uh, it, it might be doing some form of intermittent fasting. Um, all of that is fine, and it can actually be a, a fasting that, that fuels us spiritually as well. The point is this. We want to allow for whatever that hunger is, whatever that thing that we're giving up, that we often use to keep God at an arm's length, right? We use as sort of a, uh, a pacifier, so to speak, right? Just, just like a baby puts the pacifier in to calm themselves. We want to give that very thing up and allow for those raw emotions and that hunger to drive us to God in prayer. So as we embark on this 30-day season of prayer and fasting, I want for us to pick something to fast from. I I don't care what it is. Um, It can be something really small. If you've never done anything like this before, I would urge you not to pick something too big. you know, maybe it's it merely is like when I get home, I always have a, a candy bar. Okay, well maybe maybe don't, um, right? And allow for that moment where you want to reach for it to drive you to prayer. Right? That's all I'm saying. That's what I'm talking about here. It can be food. It can, frankly, it can be something else. But ideally, it's something that that you turn to when you feel lonely or you feel empty or afraid. When that thing isn't God, let's. Give it up. Allow for the hunger you feel where you can no longer lean upon that thing, when you can no longer pacify yourself any longer to lead you to prayer. And I want us to do two things in our time of prayer for these 30 days. I want for us to pray that God's spirit would be at work in this church, renewing our own hearts and our own lives, and the church 
God's people in the city of Houston. And secondly, I want you to pick two or three people in your life who need the Holy Spirit to be at work within them and pray for them each day. No more than two or three. Any Any more than that and we'll stop doing it. But the point is this. It's not up to you alone uh, to pray for everybody in the world, right? We are doing this together, right? Um, As we do this, as we participate in this time of prayer and fasting, remember that you're not twisting God's arm. You're not earning his grace. You're not earning his forgiveness. Though we may hunger and though we may ask for God to bring about repentance in the church and even in our own lives, let us be reminded that our hunger and our thirst, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, has been met in him. Right? Um, that though we are sinners, as we prayed Psalm 51 together earlier, though we are sinners, and as we honestly look at ourselves and struggle with what that actually looks like, May we see that in by faith in Jesus Christ, God sees Christ's righteousness when he looks at you. Though we deserve judgment, Jesus took that very judgment upon himself, going to the cross on our behalf. Though we hunger, he satiates. As we embark on this day, on this season together, um, may our hunger lead us and others as we try to be little Christs in the community May it lead others to a Jesus who fully satisfies as well. Would you all pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for the grace that you've given to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we are uh, sinners. Father, we rebel against you. We don't want your ways. We struggle to love as you've challenged us and as you've called us to love. But Father, we know that you are the very essence of love. And so, Father, may we be a people who hunger uh, f- hunger for relationship with you more, who hunger to be made more and more into the image of Christ. And, Lord, may we be a people who love uh, the communities that you've placed us in. We pray that you would do so by the power of your Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.